0: Well, good morning, church. If you have your copy of God's Word, let's open up to the book of Exodus. We are going to sort of begin towards the end of chapter 13, but then we are going to walk our way through uh, all of chapter 14. As you're finding your place, uh, I I was informed when I went down after the the welcome that uh, Jackson Harvey actually has an alter ego named Jason. And... um, So I think for your first ministry assignment, we'd like a list of like, what does Jackson act like? And then what does Jason act like? Uh, And we get to know both personalities. That'd be great. So, um, hey, listen, I don't know... um This morning, as we uh, sort of navigate through this, praise the Lord, we're done with the plagues and the signs and wonders uh, ending with last week and the destroyer of death that comes in. Happy Easter to everybody. Uh, uh, Glad you made it through and glad you came back. And so today we're uh, sort of gonna uh, jump around a little bit. Chapter 13 really just walks through uh, some uh, things that the Lord would ask him to do. And we're gonna get back to that in a couple of weeks. And so for now, uh, we're gonna start at the end of chapter 13. I don't know how many of you guys uh, are familiar with a movie that came out all the way back in 2013 uh, called 12 Years a Slave. Um, It is a a horrific movie to watch based on a true story. And it tells the story of a guy by the name of Solomon Northup, who was born in upstate New York at the time of the Civil War. And he was tricked into going down to Washington, DC, where he was ultimately kidnapped. And he was a free man, a free African-American. And they kidnapped him and they sold him on the slave auction block. And for 12 years, for 12 years he served as a slave deep within the woods of Louisiana. And then one day, just by happenstance, he was set free and he was delivered back, really a a story of of God's mercy and God's deliverance. And, And really for Solomon's life, his testimony in his book that he wrote back after this was really just a testimony about God's mercy and God's deliverance that he really had nothing to do with it. And so we find ourselves in a similar situation in this moment in the book of Exodus. We're all throughout these chapters that we've seen over the past several months, one of the things that God keeps saying over and over and over again is that when I free you and when I deliver you, it will be because of my hand. It won't be because of of Moses and and Aaron. It won't be anything you even did as a group of Hebrews. You were just simply my people and, and you were mine. Yet for 430 years, they lived in the confines of under the heavy hand of Pharaoh in bondage in slavery and in shackles. And so where we ended last week was the destroyer, the angel of death comes in and he takes the life of all the firstborn. And then finally, Pharaoh, he relents and he says, go. And his people say, go. And so off they went. There was this dream in the life of the Hebrews in this moment that God was gonna place them into a, a better place, into a better land. He was gonna move them into a place where there was blessing and fruitfulness and there wasn't the harshness and the heaviness of the hand of Pharaoh. The, the promised land is what we, we know it as. I wanna show you uh, something on the screen, a, a map, if you will, if we can pull this up. And, and I want you to see a couple of things. You, you remember us talking about the land of Goshen up there on the top left. And so I want you to imagine this scenario. If you look towards the bottom of the Great Sea, towards the land of the Philistines, over there on the top right where you see Gaza and Beersheba, this was the land that God had promised. And so to get to that point, wouldn't you think that they would leave the land of Goshen, they would leave the land of Pharaoh, and they would make a beeline straight to where God had promised. Yet in this moment, God tells them not to go north. He tells them to go south the opposite way of what they intended to go. And so I want to pick up in verse 20 of chapter 13, where the text says this, And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, he led them by a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel both by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, it did not depart from before the people. Now, what's happening in this moment, this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire are what scholars just call a theophany. And it's basically what that means is, is this is visible manifestation of the personal presence of God. God's showing himself in the fire and in the cloud displaying his, his presence, if you will, reminding them that he is with them both day and night. Just follow the cloud, just follow the fire. This outward display of God's inward glory. Verse one of chapter 14 then says, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of the sea. And so they find themselves there at the bottom of the Red Sea, not directly to where they wanted to go, but they were directly where they needed to be in that moment. And I think it teaches us something profound about how God works in the hearts and the lives of believers that I think some of you need to hear this morning. And it's simply this, the shortest and easiest way is rarely ever God's way. The shortest and easiest way it's rarely ever how God works in the life of his children. We have a saying in my household that I grew up listening to my dad say over and over again, and he would just call it the Erickson way. And when he usually used that phrase was when we were doing some sort of home improvement project, like for instance, our very first house that we ever owned, we remodeled the kitchen. We brought it, we bought it from these drug dealers uh, from where we were, and so we had to like redo the whole thing. It's a true story. And so we redid the kitchen, and my dad came up one Saturday. And he says, listen, I'll help you. We can plumb underneath the sink, and we'll fix all of that, and we'll get you going. Don't hire a plumber. I said, great, thanks. Let's go. I've never done this before. He goes, I got it so we start plumbing. And well, if you ever just plumb things and you don't know what you're doing, uh, you know, you plumb a little bit you realize you cut this too short or that's too long and you adjust this and it's leaking here and over and over and over again. And I think that day we had gone to, to Ace Hardware at the time. It was at least two to three times at this point within the period of two to three hours. And I remember him saying, listen, when you own a home, like, this is just the Erickson way. Everything is harder. Everything is more difficult. And I think at the end of the day, we had been back to Ace Hardware close to eight different times. That was the Erickson way. And that's been the way my my whole life, nothing's ever really been easy and there have been no shortcuts. And and what the Lord is doing here in this moment, he's reminding his people that there is no easy way when it comes to following him and there are no shortcuts when it comes to following him. There's the long way and and there's the hard way and the difficulty that arises in following and trying to be faithful when it comes to our walk with Christ. So here they are encamped by the sea. And so Pharaoh sees this, and so his hard heart sort of changes, and he goes after the Hebrews, and pick up in verse 6, and it says, So Pharaoh made ready his chariot, and took his army with him. Over 600 chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt, with all the officers over all of them, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so you can imagine the scene Here the Hebrews are, they have been delivered from the heavy hand of Pharaoh. They followed and done what God had told them to do and they said in camp here, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened again. He begins to pursue the Hebrews. And here you have this group of a million plus people, women and children who, who have no army and have no horses and chariots. They, they have no armor. They had not been hardened in, in battle by people like the Philistines and, and the Moabites and all these other people. They had been slaves and had virtually owned nothing. They knew nothing of warfare. And so here they sit near the bottom of that sea and you can imagine the scene as they look up on the hill and see the most powerful army in all of the world coming to them, approaching them. And they know what this means. They know that this means their, their ruin and their devastation. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, it says the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. A couple of things about that that I think are uh, imperative for us to understand and to know and and, and to believe. When, When Pharaoh draws near, the people of Israel do something in this moment that was really devastating to their hearts. And instead of looking up to the Lord, they looked out amongst them in front of the circumstances before them. And they became fearful, not in a fear of the Lord, but they became fearful of the fear of Pharaoh and his army and the things that were right in front of them. Aren't we guilty of this too? Aren't there times in our life where we can sing about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and we really believe that, yet when something goes wrong, or something doesn't go our way, or we experience a a physical sickness or a broken relationship or a a loss of job or income or whatever that is, what tends to happen often within our hearts is we forget to fear and to trust the Lord, and rather we just fear the very thing that's right in front of our face. And so the Hebrews in this moment, they feared the army of Pharaoh and, and forgot to fear the Lord their God. But then notice... What happens? And so they cried out to the Lord. They finally get back there, but then they, they say something that's quite strange in verse 11. They then say to Moses, the, the most incredulous question that one could ask up to this point, he says, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us here? Like, think about this for just a moment. They've seen crocodiles and gnats and locusts. They've seen rivers turn to blood. All of these miraculous things. They've seen God take the life of every firstborn whose door was not protected with the sacrifice of the blood of the lamb. All the while what God is doing is demonstrating his faithfulness and his care and his concern for those that would walk closely with him only for them to get to this moment right here where they say we would have been better off Under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, we were better off in our chains and in our shackles. I think oftentimes we do the same thing with sin. I think we experience and we walk in rhythms and patterns of sin sometimes, and it chains us and it shackles us and it holds us in bondage, as the scripture talks about. And then at some point, we become free from that sin. We, we confess to him and God redeems that. But then there are some times in our lives where this sin is so deeply entangled, deep within our hearts, that what we end up doing is we forget about the goodness of God for that moment or for that season. And then what we do is that we walk back and we say, I was better off when I was in the midst of the pattern of that sin. Oh, how quickly we run back to those things. And that sin that so easily entangles, it's not just outward things that that we can see, but oftentimes they're the things that are deep within our hearts. Our lack of faith or, or trust or even our disobedience to his word and doing what he's told us to do, but refusing to do it because it might make us a little or slightly uncomfortable. And they began to believe the lie that they were better off before all this happened. They began to believe the lie, the subtlety of this lie in this moment where they had seen God's faithfulness and his hand on their life time and time again. Yet in this moment, they chose to rebel instead. And So here's what the Hebrews teach us in this moment is that our disobedience is not always just outright rebellion, but sometimes it's just a failure to believe the actual truth right in front of us. It's a failure just to believe what God has said, to take hold of of the thing in which he has said, I've not walked in a pattern of disobedience, I'm just not trusting here in this moment. One of the things that we've seen over the past couple of months, really, walking through this book, is that the reason why God brings his people out of the land of Egypt, and he brings them and he delivers them for 430 years, it was explicit throughout the text. The reason why was he was aware of their suffering, but he wanted to set them free so that his people could freely worship and serve him. Broken from the chains of sin, from the heavy hand of Pharaoh, to set them free so they could worship him. And yet in this moment, they didn't worship. Instead, they feared the circumstance that was just right there. But I think it also teaches us something else in the Hebrews' life in this moment. They get all the way to this place in the sea, and and they've seen God do all these incredible things, and and you would think that, that, man, God has been so faithful, I'm going to trust him and believe him. And sometimes we make the mistake, listen to me, we make the mistake that we believe that faith is some kind of magical formula that is going to protect us from all the bad and the wrong that exists. Friends, faith is not a magical formula that protects us from horrible situations, but rather Rather, what it is is a presence that walks us through the difficult situations. Faith in Christ, hope in God, doesn't deliver you from the difficulties of this life, this side of the cross. But what it does promise you is that when you face the difficulties and the hard things come and the difficult circumstances come your way, all it's promising is there's going to be a presence that's going to accompany you. And that presence is God's spirit to be with you, to walk with you through it. And to speak to your heart and to challenge you and and to speak truth to you and to give wisdom to you and to nurture and to say, it's gonna be okay. I'm I'm, I'm with you in the midst of of all of these things. But then the text keeps going. They say it'd been better for us in verse 12 to, to serve the Egyptians and to die in the wilderness. Verse 13, and Moses says to the people, after this complaining and sort of bemoaning, like let us go backwards, not forwards, Moses says, fear not, stand firm. O people of Israel, God's people, his, his children, stand firm, fear not, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see them again, for the Lord will fight for you. You just have to be silent. Just be quiet and let him fight for you. Depending on your personality type, depending on how you're wired, oftentimes you may be a confrontational person, maybe you're not, maybe you hate conflict. I think sometimes in this life, we take too much initiative in trying to solve all of the problems that exist. We can really approach this text in a couple of ways. We can say that, listen, I'm gonna be the type of person that anytime I see a fight, I'm gonna go for it and I'm gonna speak up and I'm gonna say something. We can also be the type of person that never says anything. But I think more often than not, oftentimes that the battles that, that we face, that we need to find rest. Now, now, given verse 14 is a particular promise to a particular group of people in a particular season of their life. And there are rules, if you will, or admonitions throughout the New Testament and how we deal with conflict and unresolved conflict. But I, I think more often than not, if we would just find rest in the Lord and be quiet and know that behind the scenes, he is fighting for us knowing he is with us in the midst of those things you see it also teaches us a more profound truth that in this moment that the Lord does fight for you and and he is there but but notice what Moses says right before that Don't be afraid to stand firm and to see today the deliverance of the salvation of the Lord. Notice it says the Lord will fight for you, not against you. And those are big differences in the midst of the text that exists. God is there. And and, and what this truth, I think, tells us, even though it's a particular promise, but I think it is helpful in reminding us today that some of you perhaps don't believe the truth that God is for you that God does contend for you, that he does care about you, that he does know your circumstance. In fact, he knows the circumstance better than you actually understand and even know the circumstance. Even if you have all of the information and all of the facts, God still, in his infinite wisdom, certainly knows best. Instead of getting worked up, Every time something doesn't go your way, be still and let him contend for you. I think the Hebrews forgot in this moment something that perhaps we can forget. And the truth of it is, is this. God doesn't bring you through difficult circumstances to abandon you in your time of need. He doesn't bring you out of the heavy hand of sin and bondage, out of the heavy hand of Pharaoh and the shackles, only to see you become devoured later on and forget about you and to neglect you and to abandon you. The Hebrews in this moment had forgotten that. They thought God was almost a sadist at this moment that he would, he would let us go through all of these things only to deliver us into the hand of Pharaoh. And now instead of dying back in Egypt, now we're going to die in the wilderness which to them in that moment seemed much worse. God doesn't bring us through difficult circumstances to abandon us during our times of need. But secondly, in regards to that, we can rest in times of trouble, not because of the absence of danger, but because God promises to be with us through the danger. We rest because he's there with us. God was there in the midst of the camp that that he had told them to go to, the the place where he said, this is where you will set up and this is where you will be. God's presence was was with them in the midst of that, even as the danger approached over the horizon and the most powerful army in all of the world came forth. And the Lord said in verse 15, why do you cry to me? You tell the people of Israel to go forward. You lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and you divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the ground. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and he went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved, uh, moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and there was darkness and it lit up the night without anyone coming near the other all night. Then Moses, verse 21, stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And he made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea, but on dry ground. "'The waters being a wall to them on their right hand "'and on their left, and the Egyptians pursued, "'and they they go in after them into the midst of the sea, "'all of Pharaoh's horses and all of his chariots "'and all of his horsemen. "'In the morning watched the Lord "'and the pillar of fire and a cloud "'looked down upon the Egyptian forces, "'and he threw the Egyptian forces into panic, "'clogging their chariot wheels "'so that they drove heavily. "'And the Egyptians said, "'Let us flee from before Israel, "'for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians.'" One scholar pointed something out this week that I'd never noticed or seen before. When we think about military technology within today's terms, we think of of quite an array of advancement, fighter jets and uh, laser guided missiles and all kinds of things that technology has sort of brought. And when we come to the text, oftentimes in Exodus, we will read through and pass over things like he had his horses and his chariots and his best captains. And and what this scholar contended for that that I thought was insightful, he says, think about it for this moment. He says, this was the most powerful army, the largest army that existed. They were at the moment the most technologically advanced civilization that had the most advanced weapons. And here were these little Hebrews that were were walking out of the land of of Pharaoh, and they didn't have the weapons, they didn't have the shields, they didn't have the swords, they didn't have the chariots, which were meant for fighting and contending in battles. And so here they come, trying to to capture the Hebrews, and and how was it that God stopped the most technologically advanced civilization at the moment? What he did and how he stopped it was through a little bit of mud and a little bit of dirt. And the reason why that's significant is because later on we'll see in the Old Testament them talking about this idea of not trusting in horses and in chariots, but rather trusting in the Lord our God. And I think it's a reminder for us today, military weapons and planes and those things, they're not bad, we should have them to protect. But ultimately, what we are resting in is not the advancement of technology, though. We say thank you and, and more of it. We, we are grateful for it. But ultimately, our hope is not found. Our deliverance is not found in the horses and in the chariots. It is found in the Lord our God. And we as a, a church, as a people, as a country, we should never forget that. We're trusting in in him and believing in him and not doing as the Hebrews did in this moment, not undermining military, not undermining weapons in no way, but our hope for deliverance is in the Lord our God. Verse 26, then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out over the sea and the water can come back upon the Egyptians. Upon their chariots, upon their horsemen, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and they covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. And not one, not one of the greatest army that existed in this moment remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry land through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right and to their left so Israel sees this then notice their response in verse 31 Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and his servants God's been saying my whole purpose in delivering you out of the hand of Pharaoh so that you would fear me and worship me when you see that word fear there in 31 what it's saying is they began to do just that they began to worship and, and to fear him And God reminds them over and over and over again because he's rich in love and he's slow to anger. and He's full of compassion for his children and for his people. Do you know he's rich in love and slow to anger towards you this morning? Do you know he's full of compassion for you and he cares about you and he knows your circumstance and he knows your need? You see, the Lord ordains trials in our lives so that we will learn to trust him and fear him. the Hebrews. He's growing that trust. When there is no way, God makes the way. A little over two years ago, Haley and I began a process of trying to see what the Lord would have for our life. We were very content where we were serving in South Dallas. We loved our church. We loved our people. We loved our school, our relationships, all those things. And We began to have conversations with the elders here and about whether or not God would call us here or not. And there were were moments in that process about two and a half years ago where Haley and I both made the comment to each other, like, we don't see a way this is gonna happen. Like, we don't see it. There are too many variables at stake. There are too many family considerations at stake. There there are too many deep relationships that we wouldn't even imagine uh, leaving and and going towards something else. There's no way, if if there's gonna be a way, one of the things that we sort of echoed in our hearts was it was gonna have to be the Lord that made the way because we didn't see it. We couldn't see it. And yet God, over time, tenderly and gently, through conversations and prayer and through his spirit, through his word, he began to make a way, little by little. One door went away and then another door went away, and then another door went away. And then finally, we looked at each other in that process and said, he has made the way probably the most recent time in my life over the past two years where I I would tell you in that moment, in that process, there is no way unless the Lord makes it and he made it. I don't know what you see in front of you as there is no way, but can I tell you to do as the Hebrews did and to trust him and to fear him and believe in him and know that he is not taking you through all the things that you have gone through to abandon you in your time of need pray with me. Father, we thank you for your presence in our life. We get to walk with you and to know you. So, Father, now we pray that you would inhabit our praises as we respond to your word and that you would speak truth to our hearts. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.